You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello everybody and welcome to our third episode of Arts in Isolation, brought to you by Asia House and the Baraka Trust, with the support of the Altair Trust and the Agahan Trust for Culture. I am Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House, and I'm here today with George Manginis. He has taught theory of history of art and archaeology, history of Islamic and Byzantine art and architecture at Soas University, at the Courtauld Institute of Art, at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the British Museum, the Museum of Islamic Art in Qatar, the Institute of Ismaili Studies, and I can go on and on. He has a particular interest as well in Chinese ceramics. He has taught its history at Soas, and he has curated several exhibitions at the Benaki. George studied archaeology at the University of Athens and completed his PhD on archaeology of Mount Sinai at Soas. And he has done excavations in Greece, Cyprus, France and Egypt. And it is precisely the subject of his PhD, what we're going to be discussing today, which is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, it's a revered location, particularly for the three main Abrahamic religions in the world, which is Christendom, Islam and Judaism. Welcome, George. It's lovely to have you here. And I think for our audience, it's important to learn a little bit more about why Mount Sinai and the monastery of St. Catherine in particular is such a relevant place for human history. Well, Mount Sinai is a biblical site mentioned in the book of Exodus and associated with the very important events of the giving to Moses of the law, uh, the Ten Commandments, and uh, several associated articles by God himself. This biblical mountain, which of course is a textual one, uh, and there was no safe identification uh, before the early Christian period, and actually there still isn't an absolute identification, was at some point in the third century AD, uh, identified with a particular mountain, a particular summit, somewhere in uh, the south of the Sinai Peninsula, which is this triangular slice of land between Egypt and Saudi Arabia, bridging Africa and Asia. Now, this identification, which happened we're not absolutely certain how it happened. Probably it was based on some physical characteristics of uh, the mountain, uh, was instrumental in attracting a lot of anchorites, of Christians who believed that they would reach uh, sanctity and God easier if they were outside the urban centers, outside everyday life, and they would devote themselves to exercise, spiritual exercise and prayer in the desert. A lot of them went to the Egyptian desert or to the Palestinian desert or the Syrian desert, but quite a few came to this newly found Mount Sinai. And they created communities that were very, very small, perhaps two, three people, perhaps a bit larger, up to 12 people, all around the area. Now, in the fourth century, 
when Christianity became an accepted religion, the main religion, and actually a few years later, the official religion of the Roman Empire, there was a surge to ennoble, so to say, these uh, pilgrimage sites. And major churches were built in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, and other pilgrimage sites in the Holy Land. Sinai did not meet uh, this fate that early. It wasn't recognized as important in the fourth century under Constantine. And it became really a major center in the sixth century under the Emperor Justinian, who built two major churches, one at the foot of the mountain, where according to tradition, Moses witnessed the burning bush, uh, and one at the top, at the summit of the mountain, where he received the law. And also he built a fortress around the former church, which as time progressed in the late sixth, early seventh century, became a monastery. The fortress was gradually inhabited. All these anchorites that lived in the desert, they gathered there. And another major event that happened in the seventh century was of course the advent of Islam. And this new religion very quickly adopted uh, Sinai as a holy site, because of course Sinai itself and Moses, the main figure in uh, the Sinaitic pantheon, was mentioned several times in the Quran, the holy book of Islam. So we have evidence in papyri dating from the late seventh century that Muslims started visiting Sinai in pilgrimage as a holy site. This was enshrined in the material record uh, sometime in the Fatimid period, in the early 11th century, when it seems that the monastery transformed one of the early buildings within the walls into a mosque. And this is extraordinary because the mosque survives to this day, and I think it's the only operating mosque within a Christian monastery anywhere. Another mosque was built next to the chapel that succeeded the Justinianic Basilica on the summit of the mountain. So from quite an early stage, there was this coexistence between Christians and Muslims actually within the same place. And this tradition, this Christian and Muslim tradition of pilgrimage was adopted later on seems at least from the 12th century, by the Jews. Now, Jews usually only perform pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple site, but uh, we do have evidence that several Jews visited in the late Middle Ages uh, the Holy Mountain as well. So we have the three main religious of the Mediterranean basin uh, converging in this site, and that is what has made it so important throughout history. This is what has made Sinai such a unique place. There's no other continuously inhabited place of worship that has attracted all three main uh, biblical religions, the religions of the book. Now, 
this is the historical importance of uh, Sinai. But of course, the 20th and 21st centuries have shifted their attentions. So do you think that the steam position that it had for these religions, it's the main reason why this place is still so important? Or do you still think there is another layer of information that makes it relevant for contemporary audiences and for the general visitor? Well, undoubtedly, uh, Sinai in the 20th century and the Monastery of St. Catherine's in particular was recognized as an extremely important site for archaeology. And archaeology is a fairly recent preoccupation. So we do have there a, a unique monastic enclave a fortress which dates from the 6th century, which has been preserved in excellent condition, a beautiful church with the original wooden roof. The roof dates from the 550s um, and uh, several outbuildings, uh, the remains of the church on the summit, a lot of monastic outbuildings, a whole network of them. So we have a unique environment which has survived through the centuries, day in, day out, inhabited by a, a community of monks. This is a unique phenomenon, and it's of particular archaeological importance. And also its long life has allowed the monastery to amass an incredible quantity of works of art, uh, mostly icons, they are the most important group of objects, but also woodwork, as gold and silver, and uh, various other objects that make it a living museum. Now, however, we run the risk here of you know, looking at focusing on something which is important, but not the most important thing uh, in the case of the monastery. And the most important thing is that it is not just a Noah's Ark of art, but it is a living community, a living tradition that goes back to the early Christian period and also has survived positively welcoming and embracing and adjusting to the changes of history. It is a symbol of interfaith dialogue and peaceful coexistence. And we see this very clearly in the coexistence of the mosque and the churches, and also down to perhaps the 16th century of all the Christian denominations within the wall of the monastery. There was a Catholic chapel, and later on the 19th century, there was even a Protestant chapel within the monastery. And this resilience, this resilience in the face of adversity, in the face of physical and historical challenges is the most important thing. It is, I think, the most relevant to us today in the early 21st century. So George, I want to find out a little bit more about the monastic life of these monks. What are the core beliefs of their order? And how does it operate? Because I trust that you mentioned that their way of living is unlike any other. The monks of the monastery of St. Catherine, and of course the, the monastery was 
dedicated to St. Catherine later in its history, not at the beginning. St. Catherine appears sometime in the 10th century uh, in the annals of the monastery, are Greek Orthodox. So they are of the Greeks, uh, by, by that I mean they are of the Greek Orthodox rite, uh, but not necessarily ethnically Greek. Uh, most of them are actually Greek, but a lot of them also come from other countries. Uh, there's Lebanese, Syrian, uh, American, British. There was even a Japanese novice when I used to visit a few years back. They follow the precepts of the Order of St. Basil, uh, and uh, they also have a very strong uh, local tradition. The most important um, rule book, if you prefer, for Greek Orthodox monks was written in Sinai in the late 6th, early 7th century by an abbot of the monastery, St. John of Climax or Climacus. Now, a few years back, I, uh, one of my students, uh, English, went to Sinai and I told him, when you go there, uh, observe the monks, but don't be shocked by how active and almost profane they look. They do not, uh, they're not silent monks. They do not follow complicated or obscure rituals. They are actually uh, with the visitors, with the people a lot of the time. And they, their life is very harsh. The first, the matins are at four o'clock in the morning and they have several services through the day. But between these services and between their prayer duties and their religious duties, I would compare them to ministers of a small country. It's not a large community, and it's a community that uh, not only takes care of the monastery, but also the network of priories and uh, the people that live around the monastery, the famous Bedouin of the Gebelia tribe uh, that have served the monastery and have lived in a symbiotic relationship with it for 1600 years. There is a synaxis, something like a senate, a council of the monks. At the top is there's an archbishop, there's a superior, there's a treasurer, a librarian, a sacristan, and each one of those people has a lot of everyday duties that have to do with accounts, with building works, with uh, provisions, not just for the community, but for hundreds of people associated with it. So this reality of Sinai is something quite unique. You can't have peace and quiet easily there. And uh, it makes it a very vibrant place and a surprisingly grounded into the now place. It's not, although it looks like something out of a fairy tale, in reality, it is very much engaged in the problems and the questions of everybody right now. So we have already discussed the importance that this settlement had for Christians, Muslims and Jews alike. And I wonder if there is any anecdote that you want to share with us that demonstrates this capacity to coexist, which I think 
it's so important to what we are discussing today. Well, as I said, resilience was the most important ability of the Sinai monastic community. And uh, it's an admirable uh, resilience. There are sacred uh, survival strategies, as I usually call them, are extraordinary. For example, in the early 11th century, a caliph of, of the Fatimid uh, court of Cairo, uh, the famous al-Hakim, a rather controversial figure, uh, even in the historiography of his own dynasty, decided to uh, destroy all the Christian churches and monastery of his dominion. Now, I have to stress, this was very unusual and quite extraordinary and much criticized by uh, the, his own uh, people, uh, by the court and also his successors. And he managed to destroy the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, uh, several Coptic monasteries, and he sent someone to do the same to St. Catherine's. And the monks were swift. Uh, within an, one night, they converted the refectory of the monastery opposite the church into a mosque. And they also welcomed their assailant a few leagues before he reached the monastery, carrying as lavish gifts as they could muster. And also they invited him to pray in the mosque within the monastery. Now, he couldn't possibly uh, destroy um, a, a place of uh, worship for Allah, uh, so the monastery was spared. Now, very often people say, oh, these are old wives' tales. Well, actually, the monastic tradition of Sinai is remarkably accurate. And uh, I was lucky enough to argue uh, that um, there are objects, there are certain uh, pieces of evidence that could chime in with this. They could sort of support this rapprochement with the Fatimid elite after the um, attack of al-Hakim. And this goes on for centuries. The, one of the best uh, collections of Fatimid, Mamluk, and Ottoman uh, decrees anywhere in the world sits in the monastery because the monks kept all these documents granting the monastery protection through the centuries, very generously. So we can go and see these original documents saying how the monastery enjoyed the protection of the rulers of Egypt through the centuries, the Muslim rulers of Egypt. George, because we're discussing so much documents and documentation, the monastery has one of the oldest libraries uh, that is still operating since late antiquity. I wonder, can you tell us a little bit more about it? What are the most important and prominent holdings um, that it has? The library of the Monastery of St. Catherine is perhaps the second largest continuously used uh, operating library in the world after the Vatican. 
and it has a collection of hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts in several languages and also thousands of early printed books uh, which are in themselves extremely important. So it's a historical library which is still being used. Now, the library was not recognized as particularly important until the mid-19th century, when a German scholar, Konstantin Fortischendorf, uh, went to the monastery and, among other things, he discovered the earliest complete manuscript of the Bible, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Sinaitic book. Upon returning to the monastery, he uh, dutifully removed, he stole from the monastery, and uh, he took it, to, he presented it to the Tsar of Russia, for which act he was ennobled. And this, it was eventually sold to the British Museum by Stalin in the 30s, and it's now kept in the British Library. There are a few leaves in Leipzig, uh, which were also given by Tischendorf, and a few leaves were discovered in the monastery quite recently in the 70s and 80s as part of an extraordinary new find. This has a touching story by itself. It was discovered during the Israeli occupation of Sinai by uh, a monk and who didn't say his find, he didn't mention his find to anybody else apart from the archbishop. He quietly unearthed this cache of manuscript. It was what we call a honefterium in Greek or something like a geniza in a, a synagogue, which means small bits of paper that were uh, fell off books in the library, but they, were, they would not be thrown away or burned. They would be very carefully covered and uh, built into a wall. So he slowly excavated his find, and this has been the object of several restoration projects and study projects by the National Library of Greece, several scholars from around the world, uh, in order because these little bits of parchment and paper contain evidence of. Uh, books that we didn't know about, and even languages that did not survive in written form. So that's an extraordinary find. Uh, apart from these unique uh, cases, the library contains several illuminated or illustrated manuscripts, in mostly in Greek, but also in Syriac and Arabic. And uh, it is uh, a wonderful uh, place to visit, and I hope one day it's jewel of the crown, it's, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus will be returned to it. And I believe also that there is a letter, a document that's kept in the monastery, which has an imprint of the hand of Muhammad. Can you shed some light on this document and its history? Because I'm sure that it will be interesting for many members of our audience who perhaps do not expect to find such document in Mount Sinai. Now, this particular document, the so-called Achtname, uh, is very touching. It is actually a copy of 
the Ottoman period of um, a copy or an earlier copy of a supposedly seventh century document signed by uh, the prophet himself um, uh, with the imprint of his hand, which grants the monastery special protection status. There is a, a local legend or story uh, that says that when Mohammed was still a caravan driver, he visited the monastery. I mean, I think it's highly unlikely because it wasn't exactly on a, on a trade route. However, um, the story goes that uh, one of the monks recognized the young Mohammed as someone who changed the world and uh, told him that. So uh, when he really uh, became the uh, founder of a new wonderful religion, uh, the prophet uh, granted special protection status to the monastery. Now, such documents exist in other monasteries in the Near East. And uh, they claim that either one of the patriarchal caliphs or the prophet himself uh, granted such status to this and that monastery. But the one in Sinai, although perhaps not signed by the prophet himself, one never knows, the paper we've got now is not the original, uh, reflects precisely this early um, reverence for the side of Mount Sinai among Muslims. So it's, it's not a construction, if you prefer, it really reflects the historical reality. And George, uh, can anyone visit the monastery? And can anyone access the library? Or what's the procedure? Well, the monastery is open for visitors, um, depending, of course, on uh, the time of the year, depending on the regulations. We are talking about visits now at the time of the pandemic. So I'm not exactly sure how it easy it is to go there but in normal times of course it's easy to visit the library is not uh, accessible to all uh, it's accessible to scholars of course however there is a museum uh, within the walls of the monastery where a selection of the most important items of uh, ecclesiastical silver or gold icons dating from us far back as the sixth century. And of course, manuscripts and other books are being exhibited. So there's plenty to see if one visits. So how can we do to preserve the integrity and authenticity of this site? And also, what threats do you think could the monastery be facing in the upcoming years? What are the most pressing issues that it's going through? I first went to uh, Monastery of St. Catherine's and I first climbed Mount Sinai in 1998. And I was there as part of uh, an archaeological team from the University of Athens. And our goal was to unravel and document certain pieces of information that we had found in the written sources, but they were not actually visible uh, in the material record. And we managed to do pretty much that. We excavated church at the summit of the mountain, as well as some of the satellite buildings 
around the monastery today. And in these years, in the late 90s and the early years of this century, uh, there was a lot of interest in the monastery. Uh, may I remind you the glories of Byzantium exhibition, uh, which was organized at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and also the wonderful exhibition of Sinai icons that the Benaki Museum in Athens, where I'm uh, working, uh, organized in conjunction with that American exhibition. And a lot of books were published at the time. All that focused, of course, on the past, on what the historical importance the monastery has, which is, of course, beyond any doubt. However, the place is a living place. And the most important, the most fragile thing there, but also the most important, it's the way of life. It's what the community still preserves. And this spiritual continuity that has to be uh, safeguarded. So in recent years, even the Benaki, the latest exhibition we organized on Sinai, was uh, photographs, early 20th century photographs, taken by uh, the great Swiss photographer Boissonnat. And these photographs were more about the life of the monks and the way monastery was um, used rather than the wonderful art within the walls. This exhibition, a couple of years back, was co-organized with St. Catherine Foundation a London charity with Swiss and American charters, which exa does exactly that. It supports the monastery uh, in things which sound mundane, but are really practical and important. So uh, it has funded the creation of a, an electrical kitchen. And I know it sounds funny, but can you imagine how dangerous a gas kitchen is within an ancient building, most a lot of which is wood. It has restored uh, the library building, which is now state-of-the-art uh, and where the books live in ideal conditions. And it's still working, fundraising, for the last stage of this, which is the creation of custom-made boxes, each of which will shelter a particular manuscript. Everything custom-made, bespoke for each and every one. And this effort to preserve not only the material wealth of the monastery, not only the treasures, but also the, the way of life of the people living there is, I think, the way forward. The threats, well, there are some imminent threats and I don't even have to discuss what has been happening in the Near East in recent uh, years with attacks, but there is also longer scale threats, let's say more pervasive threats, like the shifting attitudes of people towards institutions that have nothing to do, if you prefer, with political or financial power, but have everything to do with the spiritual spine of humanity, what makes us higher creatures. And just a, a pitch, if I may be allowed, with St. Catherine Foundations, we will be organizing a series of online events and with the monastery, of course, 
and hopefully the first one will be on the 12th of December. And um, if anyone wants to join in and learn more about what we've discussed, they're welcome to visit the website, stcatherinefoundation.org, and uh, find out more about that. Well, George, I'm sure that our audience would love to learn more about the, the monastery and the mount itself. So I myself also look forward to learning more through events in December. And I want to thank you for sharing your insight, your input, your knowledge about this fantastic place, which I hope myself I can visit one day. And also I hope that you can visit us at Asia House at some point once the restrictions are lifted once we sort of go back to normal so thank you very much for sharing your time thank you very much and thank you very much to all of you who listen to us every week on wednesdays hope all of you are well and stay safe you were listening to the arts in isolation podcast brought to you by asia house for more information please visit our website asiahousearts.org